Good morning. Peace be with you. I woke up uh, to the sound of banging pots and pans on uh, Christmas morning. It wasn't the, the Grinch, and it wasn't jolly old St. Nick. It was my two-year-old who'd snuck downstairs ahead of the rest of us to play with her new kitchen. Uh, you know, my wife, she'd spent three weeks researching, trying to find just the right one that my daughter would like and that would fit in the right space in our house. And I'd been up late three hours the night before putting this thing together with too many screws and too many pieces to count. And so I find her downstairs, you know, snuck down there, find her downstairs, and she just turns and she's beaming with joy and thankfulness. Actually, she turns and looks at me and says, I wanted a pink one. <laughs> you know? Not, uh, not quite the response I was expecting, not quite the amount of joy that I had kind of hoped for in that moment. But joy, it's a, it's a funny thing. It's richer than just a feeling of happiness. It's not quite as fleeting as that. Joy, it's, it's more the emotion of the good life, you might say. Many of us, we define the good life as one where pleasure, it significantly outpaces our pain or where we have a high level of satisfaction with how things are going in life. And because we define good life that way, high pleasure, low pain, we often put a governor on our joy. We limit our joy to those moments in life when things are either going as we expect they should or surprisingly better than we thought they might. So this morning we're looking at John 15, and these are some of Jesus' parting words to his disciples. They've, they've had the, the Last Supper, their meal together, and now they're on a walk to the garden, the garden where Jesus would sweat blood as he prayed, pleading with the Father to do it a different way, the, the garden where the disciples who had spent years following Jesus, they'd left family, they'd left career, and now one of them would betray Jesus, the, the garden where Jesus would be arrested and within days suffer and die on the cross. And so there's no, there's no pleasure in this walk. I mean, I, as I read this, I can imagine the disciples distracted with flashbacks to that moment when they first dropped those fishing nets or walked out from behind the tax collector's booth. And they're, they're thinking now, this, this isn't the way I thought it was going to go. This isn't the way things were supposed to be. And yet Jesus is talking to them about joy. He says, I've come, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete, completed joy, full joy, an endless joy that he's talking about. And how do you respond to that idea this morning? Maybe by God's grace, you're, you've tasted that joy in this last year. But more than likely for most of us, where's life not going quite as you expected? Where's the suffering just a little too great to ignore as we gather this morning? Jesus, he's headed to his death and he's talking about joy. How, how's that possible? One pastor uh, put it this way. He said, you have to know something and see something that is so immeasurably good, so cosmically wonderful, that it replaces your overwhelming despair with supernatural joy. There's nothing on this earth, no human philosophy, no cheap and cheery phrases that can create that kind of joy. No, the weight of sorrow needs something bigger than this earth, something 
cosmic in size, if you will ever smile with absurd joy. What is it that's so immeasurably good? How do we have a, a joy this morning that knows darkness and yet leans toward the light? I think Jesus teaches us three things here in John 15 that we have to submit ourselves to in order to experience that kind of joy. He says that we must submit our lives to the true vine, to the Father's knife, and to the Son's word. And so that's where we're headed this morning. How can we experience absurd joy in the new year? And so we, we pray with me as we dive into God's word together. Father, open our hearts this morning to your word. God, where there is pain and suffering, God, would you comfort us that we might hear your truth this morning, Father. God, cause us to know you through your word. God, may your glory shine bright this morning and warm our hearts to you. Amen. And so Jesus begins and he says, I am the true vine. This is one of John's seven recorded I am statements of Jesus. And these statements, they were meant to help establish Jesus' identity by calling to mind the story of the Exodus. And in Exodus 3, God is speaking to Moses. He's speaking to him through a burning bush. And he tells him to go to Egypt and lead his people, lead Israel out of slavery, out of Egyptian captivity. And in verse 13, Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God responds, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So these I am statements of Jesus, they're meant to recall that story and establish Jesus' claim to be God present on earth. And that doesn't sound that big to us, but people freaked out when he said these words, I am. That was a big deal to people. But they were also meant to teach us about the nature of Jesus' ministry. It's because vines, they were a big part of ancient Mediterranean life. They were one of the few plants that could survive, if not even thrive, in the harsh climates and the droughts that would be experienced in that area. And as you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus loved to use agricultural metaphors. It was something common. That's because you had, even though you had a lot of fishers, agriculture, farming, it was part of the economy. It was just part of the everyday life and, and vineyards. They would have been all over the area, all over the city. And so Jesus uses that familiarity to teach them so that when the disciples hear, I am the vine, they'd be thinking about the people of Israel. And that's because as we read the Old Testament, we see that God often used the vine as a symbol or a metaphor for the people of Israel. See, in the, in the Old Testament, Israel was called God's vine. He'd planted it in the promised land and meant for it to produce fruit, to cause the world to flourish and yet judgment comes because of the fruitlessness of Israel. And so all this, this is the, the kind of loaded, the pregnant background to Jesus' simple statement, I am the true vine. He's saying the, the vine of Israel was just a shadow of the reality. It was a pointer toward Jesus. Jesus 
is the true Israel of God. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. But more than that, he's telling us that belonging to God is no longer about birth, but instead belief. See, to be in the, the family of God in Israel, you only had to be born. You were by birthright a member of Israel, of God's chosen people. And now Jesus says it's not about being in Israel, it's about being in me. And in verse five, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, during Jesus' Jesus' early life, he primarily said to his disciples, follow me. But now that he's leaving, he gives something more intimate, a, a new command to them. He says, remain in me. Other translations say, abide in me. What's this have to do with our, with joy? You see in an overly simplistic way, the best part about the vine of Israel was you didn't have to do anything to be in. Many of us, we don't find joy this morning in our faith because we treat being in the true vine of Jesus in much the same way. It's, it's something that's incidental to everyday life. It was a, a one-time influencer, but now has little to no meaning, no real impact on what we do. There's no vital connection to the source of life, and so there's no joy. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do Nothing. A branch who refuses to connect to the vine, a branch who refuses to submit itself, submit itself to the vine, is worthless. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Jesus is saying that Christianity at its core, it's not a one-time decision. It's an intimate, ongoing connection to the very source of life. It's not just a new set of beliefs or a new ethic to follow you know, we often refer to becoming a Christian as new birth. There's a, a total change in nature that happens. Jesus says it's moving from a state of being disconnected from the source of life to one of being connected. I think we often uh, lack that connection because we settle for, for lesser vines in life. We're content with those things that give us little boosts of energy but do little to offer true Life And so whether that's success or power or glory or things like the size of your bank account and your ability to keep up with the Joneses. You know, my, my Christmas tree, it's been in my living room for about three weeks now, uh, still up, so you can make fun of me later. But uh, chances are, before that three weeks had been cut from its root for at least a week prior to that. So for about a month or so, it's been severed from its root system, severed from its source of life. Each day, just like you guys, I poured a little bit of water in the stand, made sure there's plenty of water on the trunk. Why? Because it helps slow down the process of decay. It keeps the tree going another day. But in no way am I keeping it alive. I'm only prolonging the inevitable. So many of us, we cling tightly to those, those lesser vines in life in search of joy, but those things aren't the source of life. They're, they're like cups of water. They may give a small boost, but they only prolong that inevitable decay in our souls. It leaves us searching just for the next 
boost and we feel it too. That's why so much of our happiness, it's fleeting at best. Feels good for a minute, but if we're honest with ourselves, it feels a little hollow afterward. It's because we're looking for life in places it can't be found. It's as insane as me standing in front of my Christmas tree, confused that it's dying right now. What would I expect from something cut off from its source of life? And Jesus doesn't say, I'm the fertilizer. You can do just fine, but you'll need me if you want to be great. He says, I am the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Andrew Murray, a pastor from long ago, said, a soul filled with large thoughts of the vine will be a strong branch and it will abide confidently in him. So be much occupied with Jesus. How do we occupy ourselves with Jesus? How do we establish an intimate and ongoing connection with the source of life? Another pastor describes the remedy as slowing down for loving union with Jesus. I like that phrase because so often we get caught up in the the urgent that we lose sight of the important. We're so frenetic in our quest to make a living that we forget about the source of living. So slowing down for loving union. What would it look like for you in the new year to slow down for loving union instead of trying to squeeze time with God into your busy schedule? What if you reset your schedule entirely, started with a blank slate and built your life around rhythms of time with God? Maybe that's alone. Maybe it's in community. Maybe it's in God's word. Maybe it's in prayer. Maybe it's playing or resting or feasting together. It's important to remember, though, that whatever it is, a branch connected to its vine doesn't get life in one big jolt every so often, but through a constant connection, through a cumulative effect of just ordinary moments. And so too with us, those ordinary, rhythmic times with God matter because they add up to profound consequence. Jesus says the only way to experience joy, a a true and a lasting joy, is to slow down and submit yourself to the source of life. But if we we left it there, if Jesus left it there, it might seem a little bit naive. It it made me think Jesus might be just Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry, be happy. Um, But Jesus, he offers us something better than a cheap slogan. He doesn't tell us how to avoid or ignore our pain. He offers us hope and even something of a reason in the midst of it. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So Jesus is the vine. You are the branch and the father is the gardener. Other translations say he's the vine dresser. A couple years ago, we moved into our house. Uh, One of the things we wanted to do was plant some flowers along the front of the house. And so we got out and tested the soil and dug up some dirt and My kids and I counted the number of earthworms in that shovel full, trying to figure out how healthy the soil was and did a bunch of work and then planted a couple of different flowers and some shrubs and put a rose bush right in the middle of it. 
And when it came time the, the next spring to prune those roses, I spent hours reading and researching. I knew I was supposed to do something. I just didn't know exactly what. And like anything, there's a thousand different opinions on where to cut and when to cut and how much to cut. But everybody agrees you have to cut. It's for a specific reason. Because the, the branches, they shoot in all sorts of different directions. They block out the sunlight. They block out the water from being able to reach the center of the plant where it needs those nutrients. Dead blooms continue to draw nutrients from the plant instead of allowing it to focus on creating new blooms. And see, left to its own device, that rose, it'll grow itself to death. Here the father is the vine dresser. He cuts off the dead branches and prunes back the living ones. He prunes those things that are in you that are stealing life, which are inhibiting fruit. You know, fruit should be understood here as all those marks of that deepening relationship with God. The longer the branch is connected to the vine, the, the healthier it gets, the more fruit it produces. And you know, it makes me think of the, our Fruit of the Spirit series this last summer, love, joy, peace, and so on down that list. And, and here it says, the Father delights in the fruit that's present in your life. And so whatever peace is in your life this morning, the Father wants you to experience more of it. Whatever joy is in your life this morning, the Father wants you to experience even more of it. He also says the Father cuts off those branches which bear no fruit, throws them in the fire, they're worthless. There's quite a bit of discussion as to, to what this means. And so just a, a couple of thoughts. First, the obvious meaning of this section is that all Christians bear fruit. It's impossible to be a Christian and have no fruit. Just like fruitfulness is a mark of a healthy branch, so too it is of a Christian. So there's an assurance for us here that, that connection to Christ, union with Christ will change you. It will bring you the life that Jesus promises and second, I think Jesus is referring to those people who have some measure of contact with him but are not in him. The best example of this would be Judas, the man who spent three years walking beside Jesus and is now running ahead that he might betray Jesus. And we see other things like this throughout the, the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, crowds following Jesus and then leaving him behind when things get hard or confusing. We see people saying, Lord, look what I did in your name and only to hear back, I never knew you. And so it's possible to be near the vine and not in the vine. And so there's a warning here for us to remain in the true vine if Jesus is your true and only source of life, then you will remain in the vine. And when you are in that vine, the Father will prune you so that you'll produce more fruit. And pruning here, it should be seen as a, a form of discipline by a, a loving Father for the good of his beloved children. Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline, it's, it's by nature a painful experience. It's one of the hardest things that many of us have to do as parents. You know, my heart, it's constantly torn in those moments because I know I'm, I'm causing a measure of pain to my kids. And granted, I don't want my daughter coloring all over our walls and I don't want my five-year-old throwing things at his baby brother's head, but I know it, uh, I know it hurts them. I also know it's for their good. My discipline, it's a, a love for their long-term good. The trouble is we often don't recognize pruning when it's happening to us because it can just be utterly devastating. It can hurt so bad to have something that we cherish, something we cling to for life cut away from us. Alexander McLaren is a longer quote, but I love it, so read it. He says, were you ever in a greenhouse or a vineyard at the season of cutting back the vines? What flagitious waste it would seem to an ignorant person to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the incipient clusters, to look at the bare stem bleeding at a hundred points from the sharp steel. Yes, but there was not a random stroke in it all. There was nothing cut away which it was not lost to keep and gain to lose. It was all done artistically, scientifically, and for a set purpose that it might bring forth more fruit. And some of you feel that way this morning. Like a bare stem bleeding at 100 points from the Father's pruning. You're weak and feeble. Perhaps your faith is dull. It's full of doubt and disbelief. You don't know what to do or where to turn next. You feel like your soul's been utterly decimated by the brokenness or suffering that you're experiencing right now. Whether that's relational tension, the, the unexpected diagnosis or or financial shortfalls, whatever it is, why, why would this happen? It can just seem so, so hopeless. There is hope, though. Another theologian, N.T. Wright, said, the vine dresser is never closer to the vine. It's never closer to the vine, taking more thought over its long-term health and productivity than when he has the knife in hand. So what's that mean for our joy? It means we have joy in our pruning, not because we sense the nearness of the knife, but the nearness of the Father. We sense not the the glistening of the steel, but the radiance of the Father's face, the, the gentle and tender gardener smiling over what soon will be. And so joy, it comes as we submit ourselves to our loving Father's pruning. Jesus, he had something a little strange though. He says in verse three, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And what's often missed in the translation of this passage to English is the play on words that Jesus is trying to make. The word for prune and the word for clean, it's actually the the same word. And so Jesus is saying, you will be pruned, but you've already been pruned. You will be clean, but you're already clean. Cleanliness, it's a, a large theme running throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. You read Leviticus and, and God's very concerned with the cleanliness of his people. And that's because God is, is holy and only that which is equally as holy can be with him. And you think about people living in tents, traveling in the desert from place to place, 
You can imagine just the sheer number of things that would have made a person dirty. And so there's all these purification rituals that we read about that the priests and the people had to do in order to offer sacrifices pleasing to God. We fast forward to Jesus in Mark 7, 15. And this is in response to a question from the Pharisees. They're asking him about eating with dirty hands. Jesus says, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. So all those purification laws, they were meant to show us that we're wholly defiled in every part, that something from outside of us needs to come and make us clean on the inside. And now Jesus is saying, you are clean and you will be cleaned. So here's what I think he means. I think God looks upon you and says, you are mine and now I'm going to make you flourish. I am going to make you beautiful. You are clean. I've set you apart for myself, for my purpose, for my glory. Now I'm going to prune you to cause you to experience more of the beauty, the good life that I created you for. John 15, eight says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit. See, the more he prunes, the more fruit you bear, the more glory the father gets and the father delights over you saying, look what I've done. Look what you're becoming. What could bring you more joy than knowing the father looks on you this morning and he smiles in delight. He made you his own and now he's working to flourish you. He's making you into what he created you to be. He's making you beautiful. Jesus, he finishes his metaphor by saying in verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Each night as we're putting our kids to bed, we'll read a couple of stories and pray with them and then sing a song or two and then we'll leave the room and pretend like we don't hear them calling us back. But a week or so ago, I was singing uh, Silent Night with my son and I'm not a great singer, so I won't reenact that moment for you. Um, but we sang Silent Night, Holy Night, All's calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child. My son, he stops me right there and says, what does round yon virgin mean? And uh, like you, I just nervously laughed a little bit and stumbled my way through trying to explain that to my five-year-old. You know, I did the best I could and it satisfied him, so we, we moved on quickly because um, that's a fairly complex thing to explain to somebody. You know, in some of Jesus' final words, he's got something complex to explain to us. He wants to explain the measure of his love. See, the disciples, they're about to go through the darkest days of their lives. And knowing this were some of his final moments, Jesus leaves them with a parting word of love. How does he describe that love? How could you possibly adequately explain the measure of the Savior's love? He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Just as the Father loves the Son, in the same way the Son loves you. And that's profound. Just think about that for a minute. The way the Father loves the Son is the same way the Son loves you. And so it's not just full and complete joy we're talking about. It's full and complete love. It's perfect 
love. When Jesus and the disciples arrive in the garden, Jesus, he goes off by himself to pray. We get a glimpse into that love as he prays. He says, and it's recorded in chapter 17, Father, I want you to know, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The Father loved the Son before the creation of the world. This is the kind of love the Son has for us, an eternal, perfect love. And the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they exist together in an eternal, loving relationship with one another. And Jesus says, for those of us who believe, those who are connected to the true vine, that we get swept up into that perfect love, that eternal love. And Jesus says, now remain in that love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And so we remain in the Son's love the same way the Son remained in the Father's love through obedience. It can be really tempting to accidentally read that in a very linear way, obey and be loved. Don't obey and you won't be loved. But, and could there be worse news if that were true? See, during their dinner, Jesus said to them, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. So our love, it's the, the wellspring of our obedience. Our love overflows in obedience to the son's word and our obedience demonstrates our love for him. It's not linear, but circular. It's not the picture of how to develop a relationship. It's the picture of a developing relationship, of a deepening relationship. The more we love, the more we obey, the more we love, the more we obey, the more we love, and so on. And there's a beautiful promise in all this. Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. See, just like the, the married couple who after many years start to think the same things at the same time without even saying anything, so too it is with us and Jesus. The more we submit ourselves to the Son's word, the closer our hearts unite with his own such that everything we ask for is given, it's done, because everything we ask is already what the Son wants. And that's the definition of the good life filled with joy. Absurd joy is found in submitting ourselves to the Son's word in such a deep way that our hearts become one with his, where his love and his ways settle deep into your bones. All this, it's, it's conditioned on one central truth. The Son remained in the Father's love through perfect obedience. His Perfect obedience covers our failure, covers our sin. Our obedience deepens our joy, but his obedience made that joy possible. He was cut off so that we might only be pruned. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with a meal for his, gathered with a meal for a meal with his disciples. And he, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, 
which is poured out for you. For love, he laid down his life for you. And so as we come to the table, if you are a, a follower of Christ, if you are connected to the true vine, break off a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice and do it knowing this at the birth of our Savior. An angel of the Lord came to the shepherds and said, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. An author of Hebrews says, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy at his birth, joy at his death, for the joy set before him, Jesus came so that his joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Let's pray together.